This week on Living the Call, Deacon Charlie sits down with Jacob King, founder of Dropout, a Catholic ministry geared at young adults through modern, high-quality media. Dropout presents the often misrepresented truths of the Catholic Church to a demographic that's deeply longing for happiness and meaning, but seeking for it in many of the wrong places. In this episode, Jacob shares his journey from a millennial high school dropout with a drug-addicted homeless father and shattered family to the moment he encountered the real Jesus and how his life has changed forever. He shares his passion in helping God get his lost children back. 2,000 years later, it's hard to find somebody who hasn't heard about Jesus, who doesn't know the simple message of what Jesus is all about to save you from your sins, go to heaven. What are you doing to represent Jesus in a new, exciting way and a new method to really use everything we have to present it to a generation that's heard it but hasn't bought into it? Like they're out there because they don't have the Lord. And they're searching through whatever that is they think is going to make them happy, and it's not. This is Living the Call. Jacob King, welcome to the show, finally. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's it's really great. I know we had a, a little bit of uh, some scheduling stuff, uh, mostly on my side, but I appreciate the, the flex. I was about to... Um, to say something because we were sort of doing our little pre, you know, tech check and all that stuff. And we started riffing on something that I actually did want your perspective on. So I, th- I said, let's, let's just, let's just start uh, recording. But here's that thing. So my youngest son, cause you were asking, right? My youngest son uh, is uh, 18. He's in his last few months of high school, but in the afternoon, he also goes to a vocational school, goes to like a trade school and he's studying mechanics, right? Cause he loves cars. Like that's his whole thing. He's always loved, um, you know, cars and, kind of fiddling with his hands. But um, just recently, I know you have this background that's super interesting. We're going to get into all your stuff, I'm sure. But one of the things that kind of caught me about your story was that, you know, you you spent a lot of time in kind of blue collar settings, right? Or you you, you did in some of the initial part of your uh, conversion story. And um, I, I've been commenting a lot on that lately that, you know, these kind of settings of blue collar trade, vocation, working with your hands, doing all that stuff. Is, is being like increasingly lost in the world. Um, in fact, mm. there, was, there was just like a, a stat, there was an NPR article last week, which I put out on LinkedIn that talked about uh, something like a 50% decrease year over year in applications to kind of trade and, and technical kind of skills, right? So they track that stuff and they've seen a huge drop off among Gen Z, among the youngest um, uh, generation. And um, I don't know, like, you know, I I thought about that. I don't don't know if you have thoughts on it, but I I feel that like the trades and working with your hands and all of that in a way can be a really interesting avenue um, to use for a variety of different reasons or or different purposes, right? Like God can speak to us in so many different ways, but that's just one that I think we're sort of losing. And I think there's a lot there that, uh, that can be beneficial for the world. Hmm. Yeah. For the, for the trades, they're great. So just to be clear, I am terrible at the trades. <laughs> my uh, uh, humility. So I'll start with humility. My wife just she's way better. Okay, and she like just fixed our fridge. <laughs> but I found myself in blue collar. Yeah, I know. There goes my man man card. But uh, I found myself in blue collar sort of work because I was such a, a deviant uh, high schooler, mm. and so. So I found myself, I, I milked cows when I was 16. I worked in a warehouse. 
And, but the one thing I'll say about that, I've, when I had my conversion, I was working at a big warehouse. We have, it's called Myers. It's in the, the Midwest. Um, it's sort of like Walmart. Mm-hmm. But after I had my conversion, I mean, I was on fire. And so I'd carry my Bible around and we were just a collection of like, there was tons of immigrants and, and dropouts and there was college students. And it was just a huge uh, melting pot of different people. And there was, there was a lot of Muslims and stuff, but I've never felt so alive evangelizing. Mm. Like as I did, there had to be three to 500 guys per shift. And we just have the rawest yeah. and the realest conversations. And, um, and it, it was, it was the, it was one of the best times. And I, I spent like five or six years, I'd go back, I went to Franciscan University of Steubenville and I would go back to the warehouse and we just have some of the best conversations. That's actually where the Lord came into my life. Mm. It was two guys when I worked at the warehouse, we'll get into my story, but it was two guys, one in particular that brought me to see the passion of Christ. Oh yeah. Um, That's one of those moments of like kind of cosmic inflection, I think for like the whole universe. Like when that movie came out, there's like so many stories that connect to that. Yes. Yeah, totally. Um, And I just, I one of the tests, so when we started work, I worked at the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. And one thing I would notice about my team or notice about people is how they would treat. So a lot of people would say like, how do you treat the secretary or the front desk person? But for me, it was always, how do you treat the person that like cleans the office, mm. the cleaners? Because mm. um, we had a really cool front security guy and everybody wanted to talk to him. But I would notice the the people I would search for on my team had great humility. Mm. And I remember we had one of the cleaning staff and they, they weren't hired by the archdiocese. They were just contracted and they couldn't have made a lot of money. But one day I heard her say to somebody, Megan was my coworker and she said, Jacob and Megan are my best friends because mm. we would intentionally spend time after work every day. And there sure. was tons of stuff and there's always so much going around, going on. But, um, that was just always really the test of where I could see somebody's humility, like how much they cared about the cleaning person that nobody else cared about. Um, or nobody and, else and even noticed. Also, I mean, a yeah, lot of times it's like invisibility. Yeah. And I just, I've always, um, I've just always felt Jesus moving my mm-hmm. heart that way. And also I've been in some, we'll get into the stories, but been in some, my dad was homeless. Mm-hmm. And so I've been in homeless shelters and I, you know, so when, yeah, so when and, you, so uh, when you grew up, you grew up, you had some experience yourself personally as your dad was going through that in shelter or kind of crisis housing environments. No, big time. Yeah. That's when I was in college and we'll have to I'll yeah. kind of work you through the story. But when I was in college, he was going through the worst of his drug addiction. So my dad got addicted to opioid prescription pills. So Oxycontin. Yeah. And this was, and everybody's aware, you know, the show dope stick, mm-hmm. um, and things like that. But this was way before anybody knew. Like Purdue Pharma was just getting going. And my dad was part of the, t- the first test group. What, was, and, he, um, was, he one of, the, was he one of those cases, Jacob, that he was kind of overprescribed something? Or did he have the yes. right? Okay. So also it plays into, in his story, and I think this is very true for many stories. My dad struggled with depression. Mm. And... I know when I was born as a kid, my mom said it just, that responsibility just kind of flatlined him. And uh, he got super depressed. 
Um, and he got back pain because he worked at a warehouse. My dad was ridiculously smart. He mm. could get into basically any law school he wanted. Um, any dental school, his dad was, our grandpa was a pretty prominent judge in Michigan. He ran for, I'm not sure if it was the U.S. Senate or state Senate. It was in Lansing. He was in a parade with JFK. There were huge mm. Democrats, uh, which made for some funny stories um, later on. But, but yeah, so he just struggled with depression. He had a lot of wounds from his childhood. And, and I think those pills, when I was in middle school, he, he got prescribed. He went to a doctor, prescribed him like six times what he needed, got addicted. Mm. Um, and it just kind of snowballed. So I just, re- my dad was in and out of rehab five times by the time I was a freshman in high school. And we had grown up a pretty normal life. We were obsessed with, I was obsessed with sports and I wrestled year round. Um, And that was sort of the main crux of my childhood. And my dad was my wrestling coach. But by the time I was a freshman in high school, yeah. And then my parents got divorced. It's the typical story of addiction. After, yeah, about I was a freshman in high school when they got divorced mm, and that's when that's my dad tough. got yeah. really bad. And then through high school, I mean, I run a ministry called dropout mm-hmm. and I dropped out of high school. I dropped out of Catholicism. I was raised Catholic, um, but didn't have any time for that. And, uh, but when I, after I had my conversion, my, my dad really got bad and I would come home on the summers from, from college. And he would be, we would talk throughout the year, obviously all the time, but he was sleeping on park benches, uh, homeless shelters. So when I would come back, he was in homeless shelters and I, and I would pick him up, bring him back. Um, yeah, there, I mean, there's a lot there, but then well, that kind of snowballed into like heroin. And, and I just remember picking up my dad one day and just dealing with drug addiction is so messy. Yeah. Like everybody has advice, but when yeah. you're in it, it's sort of like evangelization. There's some principles, but when you get in, it's so messy, mm. but that's, that's okay. And the Lord's with you. But one day he was withdrawn. So I had to bring him to his dealer and he, and he came back and I said, what did you get? And uh, he said, I have no idea. He just tells me what it is and how to take it. And so he just snorted it in front of me. Mm. Yeah, so there, there's just a lot of memories with that. What a lot of people don't, I don't think, understand about, in particular, opioid addiction, but I suppose it, you know, it works across the board for most, if not all, kind of um, addictions like this, is that o- opioids in particular deal with pain, and that's true, like physical pain. My back hurts, my, you know, whatever, my knee hurts. Um, I've got a particular bodily pain here or there. But what it also does as part of the the actual effects of that type of, uh, of narcotic is that it deals with psychic pain as well. And so addiction is this really mm. complex thing, right, where you're taking it because your back hurts. But you also realize that when you're taking it, maybe your anxiety goes down. Maybe you're less depressed. Maybe you're not thinking about whatever it was that you had to traverse as a young person or the stresses of everyday life. And so the idea of taking it again and again and again becomes so much more about the physical pain because I run into people who's like, it did, they don't understand the concept of addiction. It's like, well, you know, if your back doesn't hurt anymore, then, you know, what's the deal, right? But it, it's because it masks this like, you know, kind of deeper underlying uh, uh, pain. And it sounds like your dad had some 
some you know issues with depression and pre- the pressure of raising kids and all those different things. And it can ameliorate that stuff to the point where you're like, wow, when I'm on it, I'm just not dealing with that stuff right now. Of course, there's all the consequences that are happening as you're doing it, which you're describing. But that's one of the things, because I've been prescribed opioids before too. Like, I mean, years and years ago. Uh, and I noticed that, like when I take it, it's like, whoa, there's much more than just pain relief happening here. There's like this like vibe that you get into this like sort of like, you know, delta wave sort of thing. And it can be very alluring, very attractive, right? Because it's like everything just kind of bounces off of you. It's like, it's cool. And you have your faculties. You're not like tripping on acid or anything, but you can see things, but they just don't like affect you the same way. And it, it, that can be very alluring, you know, as you're, particularly if you're going through other things. Yeah, I think, and Bishop Barron, I think he did a good job. It was in Catholicism series when, mm-hmm. you know, we've been commissioned with a new evangelization to come up with new expressions and new methods for the same old truths, but we yep. have to represent the faith. And that's what dropout's all about is representing the faith to those who have dropped out of Catholicism or thinking about dropping out of Catholicism. So a new expression he said for concupiscence is addiction. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that's right on. In the absence of God, the soul is searching. It's sort of like in a panic. It's searching for that, that thing that's going to fulfill it. What mm-hmm. is that thing that's going to bring total sax- satisfaction? Uh, Rolling Stones. <laughs> right, and right. It's, and, then it, and then it thinks it's something and it gets it, but it doesn't do it. And so it just panics and it just thinks it needs more of it. More of it. More of it. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, that's what sin is. I mean, if you're not taking pills, you get addicted to something if it's not the Lord. Mm. And you're just trying to draw something out of it that it's never going to, to give to you. Um, and that's, I think, most people's journey. That was my journey to the Lord. I wasn't desperate. I was, I was 19 and I was actually getting in a, a lot better spot than I was. But when I, when I tasted, like when I sensed, I'm a thinker um, who nonetheless still feels like my, um, when you do the personality test, it's ENTP. And so I'm uh, mostly, you know, think through things. My wife's a feeler mm. and it makes for really interesting conversations. But when I, the big thing, when I saw the passion of the Christ, when it, what hit me, what I saw is I was like, if a God like that exists, like seeing him on the cross, I mean, yeah. sorry, I'm, I'm jumping way ahead. No, it's okay. This is not chronological. Is, Don't worry about it. Yeah. Is, uh, is John the beloved, John's mm. gospel. It's my favorite piece of writing like ever. And I think what, you know, all the apostles were obviously awesome and had their different gifts. But what was cool about John and my professor would tell me that John's gospel was actually one of the latest things he wrote. It's like his community came to him because he's the last surviving apostle um, and said, you know, you were the eyewitness of the resurrection. Tell us more. Mm-hmm. And so he wrote John's gospel almost as like a supplement to the to the other um gospel sorry my siri turned on here and it, and it, and it has that kind of wisdom in it where you can tell it's probably an older person who's had the benefit of quiet reflection which of course he would have had cuz he was sort of you know out in the, the island of patmos and sort of relegated out there um living more of an ascetic thing so you can you can kind of feel that the other thing that i feel in john too cuz i agree with you i think it's like just 
it's impossible to kind of bring comparisons to it in many respects. But the other thing that's cool about John is you can also tell it's someone who realizes that words can never truly capture what it is he's seen and felt, but he's trying really hard. You know what I mean? He's trying to like, this is as close as I can get, but I know it's still insufficient. Like I get that sense in his writing. Yeah. I love it. Obviously like most, most Christians, but it just, it hit me because what's unique about John that the other apostles, what besides our lady, Mm -hmm. nobody else and the, and the women with them, nobody else saw with their own eyes, the witness, the crucifixion among the apostles. Mm. They only heard about what happened. He got to see it. Mm -hmm. And so much of what we learn, I'm very visual. It's like 80% visual. And it just set him, it just set his writings totally apart. And that's what the passion of Christ was for me. And that's, it impacted me in such a significant way because it was like the next best thing to what John witnessed. And despite Mel Gibson's flaws and, and all that back, he just, he knows what he's doing creatively. Like his movies are just phenomenal. But Heck what yeah. hit me is like, that's what my conversion one conversion was, was witnessing that love of Christ from the cross. And it just, it, it, it blew me away. And I understood like one of my gifts is I can kind of just perceive things very quickly. And I understood in that movie, like I saw a lot of people weeping and leaving and my cousin saw it. Some it didn't affect at all, but I just, I remember leaving thinking like, if this is really Jesus, this I'm all in, I'm all in. And also reflecting back, like how had I not heard about this in this way? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and that's what the, a piece of art, a piece of media was able to kind of, it's like we say beauty saves. Like beauty, yes. And a lot of people say like beautiful churches and beautiful pieces of art. And I don't know if it's just who I am. Like art's cool. And I've been to the Louvre in Paris and, you know. Sure. But it's <laughs> like a piece of art. It's never going to like, I'm not going to stare at a piece of art. And uh, it's that beauty isn't going to really cut through, but the, the beauty of God's love and that piece of media just did it for me. And so that's why I drop out. We try to do like pre-evangelization media. Yeah. Cause it was just so impactful for me. I think that in the 21st century authenticity, or let me put it this way. Authenticity is to the 21st century, what architectural musical and, you know, visual beauty was in the Middle Ages. That's how I view it. Because I think that The Passion of the Christ was a beautifully crafted film. Sure, it had, you know, incredible lighting and awesome direction and, uh, you know, all of those things. It was was a well-crafted, a beautifully crafted um, project. But what I think you connected with, as I did when I saw that movie, it was a major milestone spiritually for me when I saw that is its authenticity, its reality, right? I mean, it's in Aramaic. We're going off of the scriptures. We're sort of filling in the gaps of some of our understanding of some things like, how did this happen? It's super real in the sense of the scenes of the crucifixion, the brutality of the abuse, but all of it done with this underlying sense of this God that loves you, which is, so what I come away with from that film was it's real, like authenticity. And and I think that we're in that moment now where authenticity, reality, right? Look at your story, right? It's like, hey, 
I found Jesus working in a warehouse and a couple of Protestant dudes, and we're just really just being real and authentic and talking about God and scripture. And then you kind of lit up on fire. And that's not to say that it's not beautiful to be in some amazing oratory or, you know, reading some deep treatise on a philosophical or theological truth. Those are all beautiful things, but like, there's like phases for stuff or emphasis for stuff over history. And I really think right now what connects, which is one of the reasons I wanted you on the show, is like this really authentic, interesting, real, you know, kind of like feel it, but feel it with your hands and senses, but also in your heart, that kind of thing, which is very like early Christianity, frankly. It's like very early. You know, that's how it was back then, you know. Um, and, and I think that's also a big part of what the resonance of that particular film was. Um, certainly when you compare it to like previous versions of the story of Jesus cinematically, right? There's like all kinds of examples of that, but that's what made that different. And people grasped with it, right? Some people who didn't like it, like you said, walked out of the theater because they were like, this is too real. Like I'm used to seeing this sort of like airy, fairy, you know, sort of high theology, you know, representation. But now I'm seeing like, you know, people like really grinding it out as like, you know, early Christians and all this brutality and stuff. And that's, that was really happening. You know what I mean? Yeah. People want an encounter. They mm. want an encounter. Obviously, like most Catholics love Padre Pio, but so many people, when they encountered Padre Pio, it felt like they encountered Jesus, obviously because of the miracles, but the, authentic, the authenticity. Um, and so they, Jesus resurrected from the dead, which means he's still here with us even over 2000 years. So he's walking around, he's with us and obviously in a different way after the Ascension and the Eucharist using us, but he wants to get out there. He wants to encounter people. He wants to be real. What I love about God is he's not afraid to get in the mess. He actually prefers it. And that's what, one of my, the hardest parts after my conversion coming into the church is because I had, I never went to youth group. I mean, we didn't really go to CCD that much. I almost failed confirmation. Thank goodness my grandma was really tight with a priest because I showed up like once because we wrestled every Sunday. Like that was what we were about. Um, but coming into the church after I just, you know, the night I was naive and thinking like everybody's really excited. There's more people like me. And um, come to find out now there's like a stat that Catholicism ranks last in all major religions and getting those to come into their pews. I saw that. Um, Judaism is, is like, it's slightly better than Judaism, but like every other, <laughs> it, it, every other faith tradition does a better job. No, Judaism ranks higher. A little does bit it really? Higher, which is great. Yeah. Which is the, crazy because they don't evangelize. They don't evangelize at all. Um, yeah. It's birthright. <laughs> You're welcome to come in, but they're not like itching for you to come in. Um, but yeah, but God gets in that mess and he wants like Jesus, his first apostles and, and disciples, a lot of them were prostitutes. Like we know this tax collectors and we get so used to that, but the reality of that, I don't think we sit with it. Um, and it's, it's not only cause God is love, but it's also a, st a smart strategy. Sure. Cause Jesus is about bringing as many people as possible to him. And he knows if you get somebody who knows the culture, who's been in it, they're very good at getting other people like them. You know, what's crazy. Uh, what's crazy about that too, is that I see it like, I'm sure you do too. in like your everyday examples, right? Everyday life um, kind of examples. My, my wife, 
like your dad, spent seven years on and off being homeless. And so Mm -hmm. we have a huge ministry, um, huge in terms of emphasis and love, not necessarily number, but a huge uh, uh, ministry uh, to homeless families. And we've had it for 20 years. And I've met with people like currently homeless, you know, recently homeless. And we start talking about faith issues when that stuff comes up and it doesn't always come up. They're not, they're not, they're certainly not Catholic by and large, but when we start talking about faith, the graces that these people have seen experience, I mean, I've talked to people who are like, oh yeah, I had this and they describe what they've felt. And it's this crazy mystical experience, apparitions I've heard of. It's like, so God, you know, has a special place in his heart for the weak, the small, the vulnerable, the people who are living in those, in the darkness I mean, that's the whole point of what we just went through with Christmas, right? A people in great darkness saw a light. I mean, that's really what it's all about. So it's like the graces are that much more special, that much more interesting. The stories are that much more bold and big when you when you interact with folks who you think like, wow, in that world, that's what you saw. But it makes total sense, right? If you're totally in the dark, then a little bit of light is like this massive thing, right? You can see mm-hmm. it in, in every direction. And I'm always blown away by the stories that I hear from folks like that who've had those experiences and the way that God has like manifested himself in their lives. And it's so brilliant. And it serves as an example for me personally and a lot of other people, right? It's like, and you see that with the saints too, you know, Padre Pio, the, how many examples of like saints who were like poor, uneducated, couldn't read, were illiterate. And like, meanwhile, they like, they're, we're talking about them centuries later. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, the, the life of the saints are just, it's kind of the bread and butter of Catholicism. And that's what keeps you alive. Um, and cause that's going like right now, I think there's always a tendency. And I think that's the, the real, you know, just it's always present in religion that we want to just kind of huddle in insul, you know, create an insular community. And we just, we kind of care about those, our own kids. And we care about, you know, the, the insular community, but that's where God's so different is he just, he wants to break open the doors. He wants to get into the mess. And we, we say, Pope Francis says it, it's cool, go make a mess. But I mean, I worked at the highest of the highest in the church and it's, it's a real problem. It's a real problem that we face that we got to kind of, we just, and we also have this tendency to want to do it like perfect, like yeah. all these trainings. And, yep. and when I got in the office, one of the best compliments I got, I, we flew out Father Joe Freedy's in Pittsburgh, great priest. He was like a quarterback in college, just super real. Um, but he said, when he came into our office, he's like, wow, like you guys actually do it. Cause we were having him go out. We're talking, <laughs> right. we're just going out, like, right. like just go out and talk to people. And, uh, and he's like, if I have to go to one more conference on evangelization, I'm going to puke. <laughs> yeah. know, like, it's time. There's no uh, showing the dork side, but in Harry Potter, it's like one of the <laughs> the movies when he, they're like gathered up, like, how do you do it? And he's like, a lot of it is just, you just get out there. Just do and it. There's no yeah. tech, just do it. And because I've been told like, hey, and I've been told in like a hundred years that it's a hundred year plan to like go outside the pews. Like right now we got to reach in the pews or like that's going to happen in 10 years. I'm like, well, if it's sort of like with dieting and exercise, if it's not today, it's never going to happen. There's only today. 
Yeah, you're never going to be perfect. Nobody's going to be perfect to do it. And you just got to be thrown in and kind of do it. This is a huge temptation because I agree with you. I think that, you know, the, the, there, it's not that it's a downside to devotion and piety. I don't think it, it should be positioned that way. But, but the enemy uses a variety of tactics, right, depending on where you are <clears throat> in your spiritual journey. And one of the tactics that he uses for the pious and the devout is this sort of insularity, right? This sense mm. of like, well, I've kind of got this good thing going, you know, I've got my community, I've got my pew, I've got my ministry, I love it at mass and it's all good. But it, the, the, the enemy can tempt you that that's, that's enough, right? That's, I'm, I'm reminded of the readings from last Sunday. Uh, and it, this, one of the prophecies from Isaiah was like, it, you know, he like explicitly says, it is not enough that, you know, I've, I, I've, I've allowed you to minister to the people of Israel. And I forget the exact I'm paraphrasing, but basically it's not enough for you to just be bringing the people of Israel back to their God and the dispersed tribes together. Like I've made you a light for all nations, right? Like mm. literally God says that it's not enough for, which is why I'm such a, I'm so opposed to like philosophical concepts, like the Benedict option, right? Kind of like going and being a hermit and like moving to yeah. wherever and, just kind of like shutting out the world because, and, and I don't want to say people are bad that do that, but you're kind of leaving your, you're leaving people like, frankly, forgive my language, but ass out, right? It's like you're, you're, you're bailing, yeah. you're bailing, right? And, and I think that we're called to more, which is, you know, another thing that I really like about dropout is this idea of pre-evangelization, right? Because it forces you to think about like the margins in a real sense, right? It's like, okay, who are the people that are not here yet, right? What are the methods, the strategies, like what's happening before people start to develop that really tight relationship with God, with the church and kind of living their sacramental life? Like what's going on before that? And that's where I want to be. And it's like, that is so important right now. And we mm -hmm. really have to give like a lot of like juice to that, to that thought, to that thinking. And it really does come down to just doing it. I mean, it's just as simple as that. It's like, there's that person, you know, every interaction that we have is like, it's not on accident. Like the cleaning people in the office, like they're there because like, that's what God designed from the beginning of the universe that you would be in front of that lady with the broom. So like, just do it at that moment. Right. And we just, we do lose sight of that. And I think that I see more of that kind of temptation or that inclination in, in certain sectors where it's like, man, these guys know their faith, they know their theology, they're practicing, they're beautiful people, they've got beautiful families, but that enemy comes in and tempts them. It's like, yeah, that's enough. Just, just worry about that. But there's, there's a lot more. Yeah, there's so much more. And it, like we said, you just, you have to start now. And the, the Lord wants to get out there and he wants to get into the messiness and he'll use whoever. What was unique about my story, like, one of my Protestant friends that I worked with um, who brought me to see the passion three weeks before that. So he was raised Christian. We went to a strip club and he was partying and he was, I mean, he wasn't, but he had intrigued me. Like he started talking about revelation and stuff. I was like, Oh yeah, I was raised Catholic. All right. And you know, and just certain things. Um, but the Lord, the Lord is in charge of the process. And, um, and I was always, big into movies. And I remember my junior year seeing the Count of Monte Cristo and it was Friday and I was a high school dropout and I was about ready to drop out, but that movie like hit me. And then, so I, we were going to finish 
half, it was half on Friday, half on Monday. I couldn't take it. So I went to the movie store and bought it and it was Jim Caviezel and um, loved it. And so as soon as he said like, Hey, you want to go see the passion? Let's do it. But what I was always kind of shocked about is the Lord, you like we, this guy who I went to a strip club and did, he was doing keg stands at this party three weeks before brought me to see the passion after. And, and it's so raw and real, like pre-evangelization, the big thing about it is like Bishop Barron in, in Word on Fire. And everybody's starting to say like, hey, we need to preach the kerygma. And that's correct. We need to proclaim the gospel. But we have waited so long to do that. Most people do not have the ears to hear the gospel. Mm. They're in pre-stages, pre-evangelization, mm. where that, that's going to just, it's going to like- Bounce off Go of one in yeah. ear and out the other. Yeah, it's going to bounce off. And so we need to get them ready. Get them ready. And, and if Jason, which he probably wouldn't have preached, the, I mean, who knows? But um, if I would have heard the gospel, I'd be like, oh, cool. But there were some things that intrigued me. But that after that movie, I was like, I want to hear it. I want to hear the gospel. And another pet peeve for me is like, hey, we need to proclaim the gospel like the apostles did. Yes. But the church isn't stagnant. 2,000 years later, it's hard to find somebody who hasn't heard about Jesus who doesn't know the simple message of what Jesus is all about to save you from your sins, go to heaven. Um, what are you doing to represent Jesus in a new mm. exciting way and a new method? Like we, the Lord is asking us to get creative, to really use everything we have to present it to a generation that's heard it, but hasn't bought into it. But we know like we we're talking about addiction, like they're out there because they don't have the Lord and they're searching through whatever that is they think is going to make them happy. And it's not. And that's the thing is that's everybody, everybody, right? Because I think we, we also get ourselves in the temptation of going like, oh my gosh, those people, right? Who might have political positions that are directly in opposition to the gospel, right? It's like so easy to throw people away, you know, because they're, they're, doing things wrong and they might not be drug addicts, right? They might not be homeless folks, but they're really, you know, active in political circles, advancing things that we know are not good for the world, not good for man, not good for, for creation. And it's so easy to discard folks, you know, it's it, mm. it, 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 in the world that we live in today, right? It's so easy to do that. And, you know, I think the thing with pre-evangelization too, is you have to have you have to be, um, you know, really, honestly, like a really grace-filled person to understand the idea that you meet people where they are, but you don't leave them there, right? Because uh, mm. the, the, the deformation of pre-evangelization, the way you're talking about it, because the way you're talking about it is like, I want to meet people where they are, but I want to invite them in a variety of authentic and real ways to search for a fuller meaning for uh, in, in life and a fuller understanding of who they are and whose they are, right? Like mm. that's what I take from the way you're talking about pre-evangelization. In previous times in the church's history, in, the, in this country in particular, I'm thinking like late 60s, 70s, 80s, it was a lot of similar sounding things, but it was very lukewarm and kind of milk toast. It was, let's meet them where they are. But in reality, we were saying, let's leave them where, meet them where they are and kind of leave them there, right? So it was like, you know, mm. oh, we got to just be accepting to everybody. But the accepting of everyone is because we love them and loving somebody is desiring their good, right? And also realizing that 
they're helping to form us in the process. It's not just you doing something for somebody mm. else, but like your buddy with the strip club, it's God using every opportunity to also reach you, to help shape you, right? And so I think it's like when people sometimes hear this, I don't know if you run into this, I'd actually ask you this. When people hear what you're doing with dropout, pre-evangelization, the crazy media, the sort of, you know, black backgrounds, white fonts, all the stuff that you're doing, right? Which I think is awesome. I love it. Yeah. But Thank when you. when you come across that in like maybe a little bit more of the, you know, sort of these these sectors we're talking about, do do people look at you kind of like a little suspiciously? Do they think that you're kind of like the 70s crowd, like, oh, no, you know, is there any of that vibe that you come across? I don't think they know what to make of it, to be honest, because I'm not. I mean, I went to Franciscan University, Steubenville. It's not known for its liberal Catholicism, but I also don't preach behavior. Like there was a big, like when I was there, it was big, like chastity talks, go out and give chastity talks. But the one thing I know is if I didn't believe this way, I would not behave this way. Mm. And, and I wouldn't believe this way first, if I didn't know I belonged. That's what that movie, I want to belong. I want to be with Jesus. I want to be, you know, I want to be with him. And then I started to learn about what we believe and the evidence for Christianity. The biggest thing in the ministry too is we have a gift of faith. We have the Holy Spirit. We take it for granted. Those people we're with don't. So they're not going to believe like us. They can't believe in the catechesis that we preach because that requires the gift of faith. And they're definitely not going to behave like us. And that's a weird thing is we kind of want to, we're trying to push all this behavior. Like kids, like don't have sex before you're married, understand chastity, which is a good thing. But I just think it's putting the car before the horde. Like you need, there's so many things before that. And what we know is in every, almost every parish, 95 to 97% of people are not disciples. And then mm. you go to Catholic schools, those kids, that number is probably farther yeah. in the direction of not disciples. Yeah. So we can't start with chastity. I'm telling you, I, I have the best marriage. I got rid of pornography right after. And the Lord's purified my heart. I spent four years in a seminary and it just, he's, he's done so many good things in me, but I would not have this purity if I did not believe and belong first. Yeah. And so we just, we can't push purity before that. And we have to get comfortable. Um, there was another Protestant guy that came into our story. The Lord kind of brought him there in some really cool ways, but he kind of discipled Jason and I after we saw the movie together. Um, but he's like, after he's like, Jacob, working with you in the beginning, like you said that word every other way. It was, yeah. it was hard for me. Yeah. But, and that's, and that's why it's, easier for me because I've been around these people. I've worked at the warehouses. It's all these people that I have a horse in the race in the sense that I'm trying to do this because th these are my family members. These mm. are my friends. These are my cousins. And that's, what's been so hard working in the church. I feel like we're not trying to reach them. And that's why I keep on like, this is for me a hill that I will die on because Without it, I can't reach, I can't reach, there's no hope for my dad. There's no hope for my brother. There's no hope for, you know, the people that I know if we're doing, if we continue to do what we're doing, because it's just not going to reach them. That's a big pivot, the whole, you know, belong first, then believe, then behave, as opposed to behave, believe, belong, right? Which is sort of the model, at least in this country, over the last, you know, whatever century or so. 
it's a big pivot. That's a big chip change, right? Um, that some people sort of understand and get, other people don't. But it is fundamentally Jesus's approach, right? Um, and some of this is very common sense, you know, be an example, lead by example. The, the you know, the F word thing is like, I mean, I, you know, I, my career was in Hollywood. You know what I mean? It's like, and <laughs> right. what I would notice, what I would notice with this is that, cause I, I, you know, I curse very judiciously. Like, I mean, I'm talking about when nothing else will do, but just that one word at that moment, because look, maybe I'm wrong, but there's a certain art to it when it's done that way. But it's so rare that I, that I would, but, and people notice that. Right. And what I would notice is I'd meet people, Right. And people would be very casual about, you know, cursing and dropping the F-bomb and whatever. And I would never say anything. But then after a while of interacting with these folks and maybe, you know, them searching more about me or learning more about me, I don't know, some combination of factors. But I would notice that that behavior would begin to change, would begin to wane. And even so far as people would say, like, they would they'd drop the F-bomb and then be like, oh, I'm sorry. And I've never said a word about it. I never said I had a problem with it. They're the ones who recognize like, oh, you know what? I just, I, I, I catch it now. That's not me, right? That's grace working in their life. But I'm in a way acting in some fashion as sort of an example that there's a different approach to things, right? Without having to say anything because I've allowed them in, because I've interacted with them, because I've built a relationship with them. And over time that begins to evolve. So it, it, it's like, I've seen what you just described. Like I've seen that actually happen, but it begins with this kind of like, Hey, come on in, you know? And then the, the other stuff kind of, you know, dr draws from that and people will be curious. I get asked all the time. I just got a text this morning before we got on the phone, a woman who I've, who I work with back when I ran a Univision's digital business, she's not a believer, not somebody of faith, not whatever. But her new company is doing something in Brazil, and apparently they have this crazy idea of using the, the, uh, the Christ the Redeemer statue, the famous one in Brazil, as some kind of like advertising thing. And she literally texted me, Jake, I'm not kidding you, like right before we got on, asking me, hey, what do you think about this? Because, you know, I don't think this is cool, but I'm not sure exactly what to say to them. I'm like, genius, amazing. Yeah. So, and it gives me an opportunity to talk to her about like, okay, let me explain to you what this image means to a lot of people, why it shouldn't be used in commercial ways. Like how would that conversation ever have happened if I wasn't friends with her to begin with? You see what I'm saying? Mm. It's like, I, mm. you could start with the whole, the sanctity of, of religious images. You know, if that's your first shot out of the barrel, good luck with that. <laughs> it's just not, it's not going to work. Yeah. It's, and they feel like they belong with you and you kind of just, you're, you're cool with who they are. Like I've had, so, oh my gosh, because of my line of work, just when people get around, like they'll say that for it and they're like, oh, sorry. I'm like, I'm not Jesus. Like, <laughs> like it's cool. Uh, I'm just a normal person. Um, just be who you are. That's okay. Um, and you're right. Like the, with the old, the old phrase, like people don't, care what you know until they know that you care mm. and just care about them as a person. Like you're not seeing them as somebody that, you know, like, Hey, I had focus. will do this. And it's like, Hey, try to get two people a year. Those two people will get two people. Those two people get two people. Some people like my mother-in-law are, Oh, <laughs> I shouldn't be saying too much, but she with her, with my father-in-law, it's, it's probably going to, it's taking the whole lifetime. 
and to get him into heaven. And like, don't put numbers. Don't worry about the, love the people the Lord has set before you. What's called like near evangelization, your family and friends. Just love them. And just like you said, that authenticity, but know, know that they care. But then those conversations come up and it's, it's so cool. Mm. And like you, I think you said earlier, I think it actually does more for you. Obviously, if they get the Holy Spirit, that's huge. But just giving away your faith helps you grow so much. It's one mm. of those paradoxes. It and is. that's the problem with the Benedict option. That's the problem with being insular. It's boring. And then you debate the Latin mass. Cool. I'm like I taught Latin for two right, years in high right. school. Like I went to the Latin mass because they had confession there too. It was two for one. <laughs> like I had nothing against the Latin mass, but come on. And they're like, well, invite somebody to the Latin mass. First of all, the mass is not an evangelization tool. Like in the early church, you couldn't even go. Like you didn't even know what was going on. And they didn't open it up until everybody was saying, hey, they're eating somebody's body in there. Like, hey, they they were this cannibals. is different. Yeah. Yeah, and in this approach, like, hey, just invite somebody to mass. That no, get in a relationship with them. Go to dinner. Be friends with them. Love them, and just just be yourself. And and if Jesus is the most important thing in your life, it's obviously going to flow out, and you're going to want to give that away. Mm. Like when you see a cool movie, you want to. I want to share it with everybody. Like I saw so many. I brought so many people to see like the Dark Knight <laughs> when Batman, the new or the new Batman that came out. I was like, come on. So they're just going to come naturally. I like what you said. It's just, just be their friend and accept them who they are. Obviously there's limits when you got kids and you, it's messy. It's, it's really messy. And you got to be prepared for that mess. That's another temptation is we want really, you know, we want hospital corners kind of experiences. Like, well, that's, that's not what mm. we have here. You know, that's not what we have here. That's a, another weird temptation of us trying to recreate heaven here. That's just not the way it works. You know, and you can have some billionaire guy who is like really corrupt and uses money and has every toy and has every pleasure and whatever. Or you can have a very devout person who never leaves their house. And frankly, they're both kind of trying to recreate heaven on earth. And, you know, it's, mm. it's, not, it's not going to work. Um, and we need a lot, you know, of, of, um, of creativity in this area. You've mentioned a couple times Bishop Barron. I think Bar- Bishop Barron obviously is on to, to something, but I would even go, you know, to uh, to Pope Francis, the very first encyclical, I think, Evangel- Evangelic Gaudium, where he talked about a creative apologetics. Like it's the same truth, just present this these things in different ways, right? Um, and. I think that's where we're being called to really sort of stretch the boundaries of how we live this this life of discipleship and how we make that attractive to other people. And a lot of it is just living it authentically and doing it. What, one, one question that I had for you, because, and you touched on it a second ago, but you talked about you had this sort of, you know, uh, sort of rough and tumble you know, youth, right? You haven't talked about your high speed chase, but I know you told me about that earlier, right? <laughs> high speed chases, you've had guns yeah. held to your head. You, you know, you had your dad yeah. who went through his difficulties. You've had all this kind of crazy stuff, but then you end up a seminarian and then you discern out. Like at what point in this chronology do you get this notion that this pre-evangelization thing is something that you're being called to? Like, how does that even, mm-hmm. how does that come about? It was, it's always been a part of my life and until I realized it, like going into seminary, I was still like going home and I mean, my brother and my family was a mess. And, um, so it was always a part of my life. 
And somebody that I care for, probably one of the most is my brother, and I'm sure he's not going to listen to this podcast, but uh, I've just always wanted him to have the faith. Like the, the, and, and he doesn't have the gift of faith. So you can't talk about the catechism and, but he knows, he knows I love him and he knows it's the most important thing. So when did I get the notion? It's just always been there. And it's sort of the Lord bringing it up in my discernment. When I entered into the seminary, I knew just give it a shot. And I've always kind of left it, Lord, what do you like, what, what do you want me to do? And just next step, next step, next Mm. step. But just being in the pre-seminary, I just, I spent three and a half years and had a great uh, uh, mentor, spiritual director, and we just realized it wasn't my call. But it's always felt like it was on my heart to stay into ministry. And he's like, you should, your experiences. Um, so it got me a job teaching and stuff. But it's always, I went into campus ministry and then working at the Archdiocese, but I just always reflecting back, like, what, Lord, what are the unique charisms that you've given me? And my life story, where do you want me? And it's, I've always felt home, at home when I'm dealing with people who are just right at the fringes, right at the curious state. Like they would have a friend in, in campus ministry who they came and they, you know, they were on the football team or they're just like, they're, they partied with them and like, hey, come, come talk to Jacob. Um, and I just felt the most alive when I was with those people. Mm. I, I felt the most dead when I was trapped in, I loved going to Franciscan University of Steubenville, but I felt. I had to get out of there because mm-hmm. it was just so like, there's just so many disciples, which was great for formation, but I had like, I, would, I was just most alive when I was giving away the faith. And then a big one when is when I was hired at the archdiocese and I just never thought I'd be hired for an archdiocese. I was with, um, working with Bob Lesnevsky, uh, who was part of Vagabond Missions and, um, and he knew that Jim Beckman and Christophonic doing the hiring and they said they want to do something different. So I worked for Archbishop Chaput and, um, and so many people know him as like a conservative. I just know him as just one of the most loving people that's been in my, my life. Mm. And he's always like, Hey, dream, we got to do something different dream. And part of what I, my heart was always saying like, we got to reach the lost. We got to reach the lost. So we renamed the office. We started podcasting and doing articles. And obviously the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, it's very, it's very Catholic Philadelphia, but it's very tradition, traditional Catholic. And it's always been Catholic. Um, And then after the Archbishop retired, just, it was very clear. It was not going to continue that way. And so I just discerned like, Lord, I want, if I'm going to continue in ministry, like what I want, I, and I know this is him giving me that inspiration. I, I just got to go after the lost and I got to go after the people that I know aren't being reached. Mm. And um, when I was in campus ministry, I would get a lot of these, these people um, who wouldn't normally come to a Newman center because of my story and stuff. But then I, I was a firm believer. I would play like the Bishop Barron videos or we play Catholicism and it was very noticeable who was not like just curious or who was just curious and who was more like seeking or their disciples. Cause they were like, wow, this is great. The other ones are passed out. They're just like, it just did nothing. And they'd be like, who's this, this is Jacob's boyfriend. He's playing his boyfriend again. Um, <laughs> and so I would just have to improv- improvise like, okay, this is not working. What can I do? I never set out to create content. I never set out. I just wanted to do what the Lord wanted me to do. And they'd be like, Hey, 
you should do this. This is good. Mm. Like, I like the way you explain it. And we had um, somebody that was in the Newman Center, but she had a pass, but she brought somebody to the Newman Center. It was known as like the dirtiest uh, sorority. She was the vice president. And she's like, I like the way you talk about God. Mm. And so it just, it, that's kind of just how it's evolved. Um, and I just want to use my gifts and, and who knows, and hopefully it works out, drop out. We're just, I just beginning it. I've been doing it for a little bit. It's very new. People are very suspicious of it in the church. Um, so who knows, but I just know in order for me to be true to myself, I just have to do what I feel like the Lord's place on my heart. And that's just try as hard as I can to help people reach, reach people who are like me. That's awesome. Yeah. For those people who, um, before we get to wait, what, which is our final segment, Jacob, um, for those people who want to find out more about dropout and and check out uh, the content, um, the style, the approach, you know, et cetera, what's the best way for them to, to follow what you're doing? Right now it's our website. We are dropout.com. And I'm, I've always had this trouble because my main audience, the people that I want to speak to are those who are outside the faith, but there's also people who are in the faith trying to understand what we're doing. Um, and so it's hard to have a website that's for both. So my heart is always, I'm like, all right, I'm just going to design it for those who are lost. But then people are, who are in it will go to and be like, whoa, this is wild. Like, I've heard, That's dark. That's demented. Um, so if you sign up for our email list, you can go all over the website. We can send like on the back channels, like what we're doing, what we're all about. Because I know most, uh, <laughs> most of those people we're trying to reach are not going to sign up for our email newsletter. So that, that's a good way. Cool. Yeah. I know that I've sent a dropout to a few people already very high up, let's say, in the kind of Catholic media universe. And all I've said as I forwarded your, your newsletter to them is this, period. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like <laughs> this. <laughs> like that's, Thank you. this is the kind of thing that um, I'm talking about. So for what it's worth, um, I encourage everybody listening to this. And we do, I don't know if we talked about this, Jacob, but we have a super diverse audience. A lot of people who are on their faith walk, a lot of non-Catholics actually, um, who hmm. listen to the show. And for, you know, so I'd encourage in particularly those people, but um, for the Catholics in the audience, for people who are in ministry, for people who are in positions of ecclesial authority, I think they could check it out um, more for kind of strategic and tactical, um, uh, you know, inspiration perhaps. But um, it's just really good stuff. It's really good content. You're a super good writer too. Um, and I think that you present things very, very well. You also, you know, touch on a lot of subjects that I think are, uh, you know, interesting to people at the beginning of that journey, right? You touch on some things of the occult and, you know, you you had, uh, what was it? The, the, uh, oh, the, uh, the Nahash, was it? Uh, the thing you wrote recently? Yeah. The Uh, Nahash. The the Nahash, right. Which is, uh, is that, is that a Hebrew, Aramaic? What is it? Yeah. That's Hebrew for the, the serpent. And, the and so it's understanding uh, some things that stuck out. The biggest question, like this is, this is through Barna, the biggest question. And Barna is just really quick. Barna is a, uh, a research company that does a lot of uh, uh, Christian research. Yeah, they're the best. And so they've interviewed like millennial nuns and 
uh, those with no faith said like, hey, what would make Christianity attractive to you? Like what would inspire you to come back? And the the biggest question was, it show me more evidence. Mm. Um, and obviously that's, apologetics to me has always felt like the Oregon Trail, like just getting somebody to do it. It's just like <laughs> people start it, but then you got one person that finishes it and they've got their leg missing. Like it's, it's pretty hard trail to go down. So yeah. that's what I've tried to do. And the first thing, and what we do is we start, I start with articles. Actually, Joe Rogan does this. Like somebody asked him like, how do you write your comedy? You just sit down and write jokes. He's like, no, that's a terrible idea. I write blogs. And then that inspires um, my comedy. So I start with articles and we want to produce those into like to a video, per, you know, video production and uh, video podcasts and stuff. So we're just at the article stage of the I Need Evidence series that we're doing. Um, but yeah, so it's asking, it's answering the question. Most people who are outside the faith aren't atheists, but they're not believers. They're somewhere in between say like, like, I just don't think anybody can know whether God exists. And to me, that's a big problem. That's mm. worse. It's like, you can't even begin the conversation. Yeah. You can't have a, a relationship with an imaginary person mm. <laughs> if you're over 12. So that's a, that's a big problem. Well, we'll put all the information uh, for Dropout in the show notes. And again, I can't encourage people enough, irrespective of where you find yourself on your spiritual journey, to check out the great work. And it is nascent, right? It's beginning, but I can totally visualize, right? Articles are a great starting point for any content. It kind of uh, creates theater of the mind. But I could see it, you know, the evolution into audio and video programming. And who knows? Maybe at some point, even something more grandiose. So um, encourage everybody to go check that stuff out. Uh, all right, Jacob, you ready to play Wait What? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So question number one. Oh, we didn't talk about this, but you're in New Hampshire right now, right? Yeah. yeah so we have a big snow day today. So I can hear the snow truck in the background right now. <laughs> I actually can't. Your mic is uh, is well situated. Um, but uh, but you're, you're our first guest from New Hampshire. We've had guests from everywhere, um, but not New Hampshire. So congrats on that. <laughs> so, all right. Question number one, Jacob, which of these is false? about your home state of New Hampshire. Ready? Is it A, in 2012, a man named Vermin Supreme ran in New Hampshire's Democratic primary ballot for President of the United States? Is it B, the, 90, the 1995 blockbuster Outbreak starring Dustin Hoffman was set and filmed in the city of Lebanon, New Hampshire? Or is it C, hmm. New Hampshire is home to the first ever widely publicized case of an alien abduction. Which of those mm. is false? I'm going to go with A. <laughs> a. Sadly, that's incorrect. In, two, oh. in 2012, there actually was a guy named Vermin Supreme, which is a bizarre name. Apparently, the heart of his platform <laughs> were promises of free ponies and mandatory toothbrushing. And uh, fortunately for all of us, he finished six out of six with only 833 votes. But yeah, he was on the Democratic ballot for president and out of your state just a decade ago or so. Surprised he didn't do better. Right. You would have thought. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, the correct answer is B. There was a big film uh, that was shot in uh, New Hampshire, but it wasn't uh, Outbreak starring Dustin Hoffman. Do you happen to know what film was set and filmed in New Hampshire in 1995? I don't. I'm terrible with New Hampshire because it's my wife's. Hometown, so I'm just oh, a got it. transplant. Okay. <laughs> so uh, it was the movie Jumanji that was shot no in way. Keene. It was set set in and shot in Keene, New Hampshire, and that movie starred Robin Williams. Okay, so question number two, 
You've written, and we actually just talked about this, you've written on some topics involving the occult and the father of lies. So this question may suit your demonological astuteness, Jacob. True, <laughs> true or false, the decommissioning of a tattoo, and for those who don't know, that's the deliverance prayer to cleanse a tattoo of any demonic connections. The decommissioning of a tattoo can only be given by an exorcist priest except in the case where the person with the tattoo performs the prayer over themselves. Is that true? Hmm. So the decommissioning of a tattoo can only be given by an exorcist priest, except in the case where the person with the tattoo performs the prayer over themselves. I would say, is that false? No, it's true. Oh, man, I'm striking out. That actually is true. Uh, interestingly, there's levels of authority and demons are over, super legalistic, but we have authority over our own bodies. And of course, you can have an exorcist priest do this prayer. And in fact, lay people should not do a decommissioning uh, a, a prayer over anybody for a tattoo. But a person can do the prayer to decommission a tattoo over themselves if they're the ones who have it because they have authority over their own person. So, uh, yeah, it's one of those little quirky uh, exorcist uh, inside inside trivias. Good. So there you go. Good to know. All right. So this is your, rede- <laughs> your redemptive moment, Jacob. Final question, okay? Your last name, King, is a relatively common one. In the U.S., it is shared by nearly 600,000 people. That's a real stat. Expressions of this last name exist in a variety of cultures and countries as well. In Spain, it's Rey or Reyes. In Russia, it's Korol, and in Germany, it's Koenig. A variation of that final example is the last name Koning. Which country, Jacob, uses that variation? So in Germany, it's Koenig, and in this country, it's Koning. Hmm. Which country would that be? And there's actually two acceptable answers, believe it or not. Hmm. I can give you a hint. Yeah, give me a hint. Okay, so so it's close to Germany, so not too far. Um, and this country that's close to Germany, also there's another country that's nowhere near Europe that also uses a very similar language and actually has the same word for king uh, down there. So uh, I could give you more hints, but that's that's a, mm. that's a, that's, a, that's a that's a quick one. Similar to German. Oh man, I'm just showing I dropped out of high school. I know a lot That's of theology right. and philosophy. <laughs> um, I can give you another better. example. The, the, this country is famous for windmills and cheese. Oh, and, Aus- oh, and wooden tr- shoes. It, Austria? Close. No, but they, use, they speak German. They speak German okay. in Austria. Very close, but that's not it. I'll give you one more guess. Oh, cheese. Okay. Cheese, so is it windmills, the and yes, there it is. Holland. That's yeah, right. Great. That's right. In Dutch, king is koning. Hmm. And so you can see the sort of variation. But uh, but yeah, that's one of those names. My my last name, even though it's weird to, to hear it in English, Echeverry, is actually the Basque name for Newhouse, which is a very common last name, right? And you have it hmm. in French and Spanish and a number of different places. So So there you go. All right. Well, good job. You redeemed yourself there at the very end, Jacob, which is, you know, this is the story <laughs> of your of life. Three. There you go. There you go. 33%. You know? I failed. <laughs> you no, know, you snatch victory from the jaws of deceit, of defeat. That's what you did. <laughs> I chose my ministry name uh, correctly. That's right. Correctly. And I'm happy that yep. you did. 
Awesome for you coming by, brother. I really appreciate it. Um, and again, uh, really encourage everybody to check out what you're doing. It's been a real privilege to have you on the show. Thank you, Deacon Charlie. You're the best. Thank you. Awesome. And if you're listening to our voices, that means it is time to follow and subscribe to the show and to share this episode, particularly with somebody who may be outside of the faith, who may be wandering through a variety of different um, substitutes or replacements for what you know we may know is the fulfillment of who they are in a relationship with Jesus. Send this episode specifically to them, and we'll be very fortunate to see you again next time on Living the Call. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.